All right, welcome back to Firewall. I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. My guest today is Elon Head. Elon's a senior editor at the Air Current, which is a subscription service that covers aerospace and aviation. And what she covers, which is really fascinating, is eVTOL, electronic or electric vertical takeoff and landing. And what that really means, what we call it, are flying cars. I think the listeners may know that flying cars are a passion of mine. Uh, I wrote a novel that's coming out on November 7th about a campaign to legalize flying cars in New York City, Los Angeles, and Austin. And uh, Matt Alon sent her the book. Fortunately, she liked it, or at least said she did, and even more fortunately said she'd come on the podcast, and here she is. So you're a journalist and a pilot, and somehow you've managed to combine these two things into an actual job. How'd you do that? Uh, I got lucky. <laughs> so, yeah, I actually started out um, as a writer. I started out as a newspaper reporter, uh, then got into freelance writing and got into travel writing, which was a pretty sweet gig. I got to go to some pretty amazing places, and one of those places was a resort in coastal British Columbia. This was back in 2004, I think, and that's where I went for my first helicopter ride and thought it was absolutely amazing. Um, I wonder sometimes if I'd gone for my first helicopter ride somewhere less absolutely spectacular, <laughs> whether it would have impressed me as much. So like if you were like flew over like Phoenix, you'd be like, yeah, whatever. I don't need Phoenix. Yeah. <laughs> So, but but coastal BC is just amazing, and uh, you know to be able to 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 we flew to this remote river, went uh, fly fishing for the day, and the helicopter flew us back. And by the end of the day, I was absolutely like enthralled with the helicopter. So, started asking the pilot, you know, how does this work? How does that work? How long does it take to get your license? And the pilot said like, oh, three to four months, which blew my mind because I never thought about what it took to become a helicopter pilot before, but this seemed achievable. Uh, so I went home to Phoenix, actually, <laughs> signed up for lessons. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't know and- that. <laughs> <laughs> not, not as spectacular a place to fly, but they had a, the advantage of having a flight school. Um, and yeah, so um, very quickly figured out that I couldn't afford to fly helicopters as a hobby. So I ended up doing it professionally, uh, went all the way through the training, became a flight instructor, worked as a flight instructor for a while, um, did some of their odd jobs. And uh, yeah, then uh, actually got a job opportunity to edit a helicopter magazine in Australia moved down to Australia for a bit. And that's really when I stopped flying full time and started writing about helicopters. Yeah. And and by the way, I'm just going to hopefully want to have that. You live in Belize. So like my point is you do not live a normal conventional life by any measure. <laughs> no, no. I've uh, I've had a highly itinerant adulthood, that's I would per- say. <laughs> per- pretty amazing. So so you're officially the eVTOL expert, but I think regular people all call it flying cars. And I think we're all sort of aware something's happening, but just What's the deal with flying cars right now? So, um, yeah, so, you know, backing up, I I was writing about helicopters um, after Australia. I uh, moved to a magazine that was actually based in Canada. That's a big helicopter magazine. So I've been focused very much on helicopters for a number of years. And around 2016, I think 2016, uh, was when Uber released their Elevate white paper. And I uh, actually had an acquaintance in the helicopter industry who ended up getting involved with, with Uber's project. And he told me about this first Uber Elevate Summit that was coming up and that I should really attend. Uh, so that was my first introduction to uh, eVTOLs, so electric vertical takeoff and landing aircraft, which uh, most of the rest of the world calls flying cars. Although I think it's important to note that these 
These are not flying cars in the sense that they can drive on the road and fly. Uh, they're they're basically you know electric versions of helicopters. What what, what why why aren't we just calling these helicopters? Like what about them is different? So they're different in their design. So a helicopter um, uses uh, you know one or two big rotors, um, and the way these these rotors articulate is, is somewhat different than, than these electric aircraft. So the, the, the thing that makes this innovation possible with eVTOLs and you know, really kind of you know, created this, this whole industry is the fact that you can do a lot of wacky things with electric design. So it's called the le- distributed electric propulsion. And basically, because you don't have this big, heavy engine that you have to connect with mechanical shafts to the rotors or propellers or whatever, you can stick propellers pretty much anywhere on the vehicle that you want. And so that enables, you know, some really far out designs. Uh, you know, the, the, the more little propellers you have stuck around this aircraft, uh, the more redundancy you have, you can do things that make it quieter than a helicopter. Um, and so, so you get some really interesting designs. And you know, if you look at the space today, uh, there's m- most helicopters at this point look like helicopters, right? <laughs> so there's there's not a whole lot of diversity in designs. Like they they all function basically the same way. But with the eVTOL world, we're at this point of like real experimentation where all of these designs are very different, uh, very futuristic, and the industry has yet to figure out which one is is really going to be the, the the best. How much, no, I mean, it seems to me that one of the reasons why people don't like helicopters flying overhead is they're really fucking loud. Um, what's the deal with flying cars? Equally loud? Yeah, so the helicopters are incredibly loud. And I say this as someone who loves helicopters, but, uh, you know, even sometimes I'm sitting next to a helicopter and I'm like, God damn, that's noisy. So, um Electric propulsion gives you the opportunity to be quieter. Uh, now, I think it's important to note that just making something electric doesn't necessarily make it quieter. I mean, I think we've all heard really obnoxious drones. Uh, you know, someone recently used the analogy of a hairdryer. <laughs> hair dryer is electric, but it's sure not quiet. But because you have this flexibility in how you design your aircraft, you can potentially make it a lot quieter. So first of all, you're getting rid of the combustion engine, which is a source of noise. Um, but then you also have the opportunity to design your aircraft to get rid of some of the sources of noise on a helicopter. So, you know, with a helicopter, you've got this big rotor disc and it creates noise in a certain type of way. Um, if you have a bunch of smaller propellers and you shape them just right and you slow them down so they're, they're not moving as quickly through the air at the tips, um, then they're potentially a lot quieter. Um, and, you know, Joby, I think, is an example of a company that's done an amazing job with this. I've actually seen their UVTOL fly. And, you know, it's not silent, um, but it's uh, so much nicer to listen to than a helicopter. Right. So you've got a co- you mentioned Joby, Archer, a few others. Are there major distinctions between the leading prototypes? Yeah. So all of the designs, as I mentioned, um, you know, are slightly different, sometimes you know, very different. They come at the problem in different ways. Uh, so there, uh, there's there's different approaches to the design, different approaches to, to flight controls. Uh, you know, I think uh, Joby and Archer, even though their designs are different, uh, they're coming at it with similar objectives. Uh, you know, they, they realize the importance of you know being really quiet and being really safe. Um, so there's there's definitely some similarities, um, but still a lot of experimentation in the industry to figure out what's the the best approach. So okay, so so. Give me the best case kind of today, next year or two scenario 
of how someone would actually use a flying car and how they would function and operate? Sure. So in general, most of the aircraft that are being developed are not being developed for personal ownership. So unlike an actual car, you won't be able to go out and and buy this and and fly yourself around. Uh, Typically, they're going to be operated like helicopters. So there's going to be an operator who's Uh, certificated by the FAA. That means they're approved. They have to follow specific regulations and you can go to them and uh, they will fly you around. (laughs) So so a lot of these companies, uh, they're developing apps so that you would be able to book your, you know, your flight like you would uh, an Uber. Uh, And of course, Joby has actually uh, an agreement with Uber. Uh, The idea would be that you could uh, take a car to what's called a vertiport, which is where the aircraft will take off and land, hop in your eVTOL, fly to where you need to go, and then maybe take an Uber for the last mile walk, depends on on where you're trying to go. So then like, what's what's the distance typically that it would make sense to to do you know multiple steps as opposed to just the, how you currently get from point A to point B in, in a city. So that is a big question. <laughs> That's a big unknown, and uh, I think it's going to depend a lot on the market. So obviously, the whole point of these aircraft is you want to save time uh, by flying again, instead of being stuck in traffic, or flying over water, for example, where you might otherwise have to take a boat or drive the long way around. So a lot of these early routes, they're going to be in areas where there is a lot of traffic and where people don't mind paying a bit more for the time savings. And what that time savings is going to be um, is is a question that's only going to be decided by the market. Uh, And there's a hassle involved in switching from an Uber to a flying taxi back to a, to a ground taxi. And it's going to be a, a, you know, a big problem for the, the companies to figure out how do you minimize that time and hassle to really make it worth it. Yeah, it's, it's funny. Before we started, Hugo was asking me if I'd ever taken any of the services that do helicopters from Manhattan to JFK. And I was saying, no, I haven't, because it has seemed to me that um, by the time I get to the heliport, deal with all the stuff, fly to JFK, get to the terminal, it's not going to be all that much faster than just taking an Uber from Manhattan to JFK. Um, Do you think that's the like, are people going to think about it that way and be like, "Ah, this isn't really worth it? Or do you think that they've got some clear use cases where everyone's like, yes, I will definitely pay more money and deal with the hassle because this is this will save me so much time. So that is, um, it's a problem, a, a real problem that has definitely been identified by the industry. And they're, they're trying to figure out ways, you know, how do we address this? How do we eliminate the hassle? How do we make it worth it? Uh, one big thing that a lot of companies are looking at is how can we take our air taxi company customers who are going to JFK and basically get them airside. So get them behind security so that when you get to the airport, then you don't have to wait in line for a half hour of like to go through security screening. If you can like bypass that screening because there's screening uh, at the facility where you take off on the, the flying taxi, well, that changes the value proposition quite a bit. So that's that's something the companies are looking so at. So it's doable only because I know that my fund were investors in the company called Landline, which is the opposite of flying cars. It's a bus company. Um, yes. But um, but nonetheless, they have kind of behind the TSA privileges and they're able to do their screening at other sites and then the bus can pull up on the runway and people can get out and, you know, all that. So, exactly. Yeah. No, that, so, that, so that I, was a big I, yeah, development it's, it's, when they got that. Right. So it's, it's definitely doable. And, and a lot of this is, is fairly recent. So um, 
like right now, your typical one, how many people go in it? Or is it like a, you, do you reserve it as a group, do you think? Is it going to be just a bunch of random strangers getting in a flying car together? <laughs> Uh, good question. Right now, a lot of the models are uh, you book it by the seat. So you would uh, be with some random strangers if you were traveling by yourself, uh, hypothetically. Uh, these are small aircraft. So most of the ones being developed right now can seat like four passengers. So not huge. If you're traveling with a family, you would probably end up having the, the aircraft yourself. Uh, but the idea is that that you would travel with other passengers. So vertiports. Um how, what do they look like? How expensive are they to build? How big of a permitting process is it? Like, is it one of those things where they'll just spring up everywhere, like illegal weed shops or whatever? Or is it going to be like every, most things in infrastructure that really take a, a lot? Uh, also, to be determined, um, I would say that the vertiport aspect is probably the aspect that is going to be most heavily regulated by the local authorities, mm -hmm. so the, the city where the vertiport's going to be. The aircraft themselves, those operations are all regulated by the FAA at the federal level. Uh, but the cities and the communities, they get to say over like where these aircraft can actually land in the community. So. Uh, right now, it's not totally clear to what extent these aircraft will be able to land at things that look like existing helipads or are existing helipads, and to what extent they're going to need purpose-built new infrastructure. Uh, there's some hope that, uh, that that they will be pretty flexible. They can land in you know, relatively small spaces. Uh, there may be some vertiports that, that really don't take a lot of uh, time and money to build. Um, but then there's the idea that if you want to have a lot of aircraft operating out of the space, then you'll have a purpose-built vertiport uh, that does look bigger than, you know, and, looks like some of the big heliports today. And is there a world, because ultimately, obviously, for this to work, it has to really scale, um, which means it has to be as convenient as, you know, it's like the same thing that we, everything we invest in, <laughs> right, which sort of minimize, minimize friction as much as possible. I mean, is there a world where they figure out how to do a vertiport in sort of the smallest, narrowest possible space so it's on top of a office building or, you know, within the fabric of a city as opposed to being kind of like, like even here in Manhattan, the heliports are the outlying spots, right? On the West Side Highway, on the FDR, down in past Battery Park. So they're not that convenient. Um, do you yeah. see a world where vertiports are like on the equivalent of like, you know, 42nd and 5th? Yeah, so there's that's certainly like the hope of the industry is that they will be able to have vertiports, vertistops, you know, this kind of smaller infrastructure as well, uh, in really high numbers, conveniently distributed throughout cities and communities. Uh, again, uh, what that actually ends up looking like, uh, that's going to be in the hands of the, the local cities and communities, whether they they welcome these things or not. Yeah, that's big I mean, I worry a bit that, you know, we just see sort of a NIMBY mentality on so many new types of ideas that would sort of, you know, require physical space in the city that um, I'm a little nervous that in the same reason that affordable housing gets held up all the time and all kinds of other stuff that vertiports uh, might as well. Um, do you worry about that or no? So uh, I think the companies worry about it yeah. <laughs> a lot. Right, yeah, you're so, your and, I, and yeah. I think, you know, they have a burden of proof. They, they have to, to 
demonstrate that these things really are as quiet and as safe as they promise they're going to be. And it's going to take some time to prove that. And early operations are probably going to be a little more segregated uh, so that they can you know, make that safety case, make that noise case. And then once you have an aircraft actually flying that you can show to a community and say, hey, look, this is what we are. Uh, we're safer than a helicopter. We're quieter than a helicopter, and we can be useful to your community. Uh, if they can prove that, then they have a better chance of being welcomed. Um, but they, they still have to prove that. Right. So you, you mentioned the FAA. You mentioned localities. There's kind of a regulatory soup here, a little bit, because different things, you know, are in different levels. So what's the FAA doing right now in regards to sort of regulating and preparing for for flying cars? Sure. So the FAA has responsibility for a few things. Uh, the first thing they have responsibility for is certifying the aircraft itself. So evaluating the design of the aircraft, ensuring that it's safe. And that's pretty complicated because this is a new technology. So the, the rules and the standards for certifying airplanes and helicopters, they've existed for a long time. They've really been fine-tuned. The FAA knows how to certify an airplane or a helicopter. Uh, this new technology, the Air FAA has never certified electric motors or big propulsion lithium ion batteries before. And so they're having to figure out a lot of the standards for, for how they determine these aircraft are safe and are, as they go along. Are they and, working and kind of with the companies now? So as the development's happening, the FAA could say, yes, we like this. No, this is going to be a problem. Or like the companies make the whole thing and then just hope the FAA happens to like it. No, they're definitely uh, working with the FAA as they go along, trying to have that dialogue. Uh, the, uh, there's various stages that are pretty well defined for the certification process where, you know, the company comes up with a plan. They say, this is our plan for, say, certifying the battery or certifying the electric motor. This is how we plan to, to, to show that it's safe. And then the FAA looks at that, thinks about it, says, well, maybe we like this, but not this. And they have that dialogue and gradually they converge on you know, the, the standards and what they call means of compliance for, for different aspects of the aircraft. Right. So like ultimately, I mean, it, it's, it's a lot like just regular cars and driving, right? Which is, you know, NHTSA and DOT kind of oversee the car itself and its specs and its safety and all that. And localities have the, the rules of the, of the road. It, uh, almost. Okay. So the FAA has a lot more control over the rules of the road as well. Okay. So, uh, you know, there's, uh, there's, uh, rules that are also being written for, uh, you know, what type of certification do you need to, to operate these aircraft and how do you operate them? Um, how much extra reserve battery power do you have to have and so forth? And that's all in the process of being defined as well. Um, but the FAA does have jurisdiction over that piece of it too. Um, so where do you, like, for, for individual cities, the permitting, the vertiport construction, all of that are going to be intense political fights, just like every new transportation technology, whether it's scooters or ride sharing or anything else, <laughs> is an intense political fight. Does the FAA, is it going to be the same thing, or do you think it's much more kind of technocratic? And as long as, once they develop a process, as long as you can check the right boxes, like, you know, existing helicopters and planes do now, um, that's going to be sort of the extent of their concern. So I think that you uh, that the FAA will definitely be much more standardized. So uh, you know they're they're looking to develop a set of rules that's going to apply to all these these vehicles in a fairly consistent way. Uh, the operator operating rules will fly apply in a fairly consistent way. Um, so that's 
that that's what that piece of the regulation is looking like. Um, but definitely, totally agree that these uh, you know local battles over vertiports they're they're going to be intensely local. Yeah. Um, so Congress has gotten in the act a little bit. Can you tell us what they're doing? And even do, do they need to do anything, or does the FAA already have all the jurisdiction it needs to handle this? This is a really interesting question. <laughs> so yes, so Congress is very interested in eVTOL technology, advanced air mobility is, is what they call it. And advanced air mobility kind of encompasses a, a larger suite of technologies. So they have people developing electric airplanes as well and developing smaller cargo drones that are you know meant for, for carrying packages and so forth. Um, but Congress is very interested in eVTOLs, and eVTOL companies are very active in lobbying Congress to be interested in eVTOLs. Uh, and you know, there's uh, you know potentially a lot of of jobs that could be generated by this sector. Uh, these these companies are building big manufacturing facilities in, in different locations, and and that's of interest to politicians. Um, so yes, yeah, so Congress um, is basically telling the FAA <laughs> that they they need to hurry up and uh, you know work with these eVTOL developers and figure out what the rules are. Um, is that necessary? I think I think it is. Um, the FAA has really suffered from not having permanent leadership for a while. Mm -hmm. uh, so there hasn't been a permanent administrator for some time. And there are various factions within the FAA that are more or less supportive of eVTOLs. And they have not really come up with a consistent approach towards regulating these aircraft and you know, coming up with those standards that are going to get them into service. So over the past couple of years, we've seen a lot of uh, the FAA going back and forth on their approach to how they're going to certify these things. And I think that has sparked some of the interest from Congress as well, as uh, they're, they're looking at the FAA taking this you know, very inconsistent approach to, to getting this new technology to market. And, and they're concerned about how how expeditiously the FAA can do that. So why do you, it feels like on the autonomous vehicle side of things, Congress and DOT kind of are the problem in a lot of ways, and they are the holdup, um, and whether it's solely sort of incompetence and bureaucracy or whether it's sort of political influence by the Teamsters on trucking or whatever it is, um, if, if the federal government doesn't seem to be moving with any real speed around uniform self-driving regulations. Um, why do you think they might feel differently about eVTOL? Maybe it's because anti-eVTOL factions haven't emerged yet. <laughs> so right now, right now, I mean, the conversation is very much being driven by these these companies, and I'm not really sure to what extent the general public, you know, even recognizes what eVTOLs are um, or has an opinion about them. You know, maybe they've heard something about it, and it's like, uh, okay, let's see. Um, but I, I, I don't think that uh, <laughs> the, the industry's really been around long enough for, for people to feel threatened by them, um, except for maybe some of the other bigger aerospace players that, you know, are, are doing what they can to, to kind of slow down some of these startups. But And if, yeah. if you're Delta or American or whatever it is, I mean, do you either say, I really want to get into this because it's going to be a much higher margin business than what I do now, or I see this arguably taking away business from me, or do you just say this is a totally separate sector I don't care at all? So a lot of the airlines have jumped into partnerships with these eVTOL companies. So United has a big partnership with Archer Aviation. Uh, Delta has a partnership with Joby Aviation. Uh, American has a partnership with Vertical Aerospace. 
So at this point, and, and, and th these airlines have given these companies you know, significant money, like in the tens of millions of dollars. Uh, they've also basically struck marketing partnerships where they you know, say they'll buy a certain amount of aircraft uh, in exchange for some equity in the company. And the, the, the agreements as to how many aircraft they'll actually buy are, are fairly fuzzy. Uh, but a lot of those, these big airlines like United and Delta, they're looking at eVTOLs as a way of basically uh, improving the customer experience for premium VIP customers. So for example, if you can take a really convenient eVTOL aircraft over to the airport, you know, get airside behind security, have a more pleasant experience, then then that's going to help them, uh, you know, drive up customers and, and brand loyalty. Right. I imagine, especially since so much of the margin they have is really on the business and first class part of the plane. So the, the more and more attractive they can make that in any way, that's going to going to help them. So you mentioned Joby a couple of times, Archer, one or two others. What's the playing field look like? You know, who's really good? Who's struggling? Who do we think wins this thing? So there are a ton of companies that have eVTOL concepts. So, you know, there's there's websites that track how many eVTOL concepts are out there and there's hundreds. So all you all you basically need is Photoshop to come up with a rendering of an eVTOL. Uh, in terms of serious players, uh, I think you have three in the US that are far along in the sense that they have full-scale aircraft that are flying you know, regularly. Uh, Joby Aviation is a leader. Archer Aviation is a fast follower, uh, making really good progress close behind. They're another publicly traded company. Mm -hmm. And then in Vermont, you have a private company called Beta Technologies. They're actually going to certify an electric airplane first, but they're also working on developing an eVTOL aircraft. And they have full-scale prototypes that they've been testing and flying quite a bit. You have a couple companies over in Europe. Uh, also publicly traded is Lilium. Uh, in the UK, you have Vertical Aerospace. That's the company that has a partnership with American. Uh, then you have another German company called Volocopter. That's probably going to be the first eVTOL that's certified in the West. And it's a, it's a multi-copter drone. And uh, it has basically 18 little rotors and it kind of kind of flies and hovers and doesn't fly fly very fast. But they're looking at doing short distance flights starting in Paris next year. Got it. So, so Europe, it's good. I was about to ask you that question, which is sort of where the U.S. kind of stands relative to other countries. So you think Europe kind of starts out a little further ahead. I guess Paris next year for the Olympics also kind of makes, makes sense for that. Um, when do you think the first sort of commercially available, accessible flying car ride in the U.S. will be? So the companies are targeting 2025. So Joby and Archer, they're you know, looking to be the, the first certification. They're saying 2025. Uh, will that happen? <laughs> Unclear. Uh, it certainly could happen, uh, but you know, they have a, a long way to go with flight testing and certification. And there's lots of things that could happen on the way that could push that schedule back. Um, it feels like, and this may just be a pure perception thing, but in a weird way, you know, flying cars have kind of leapfrogged self-driving cars, right? Self-driving cars were the future. They were coming any second now. And there has, there's been technological progress, but it's still not really that available to most people, right? Um, did, some, what, did something go wrong there or did we just get bored and sort of switched our attention? <laughs> why, why aren't we currently in, in full, full self-driving cars? 
Good question. I'm not an expert on full self-driving cars. Uh, certainly, you know, have some some opinions as a layperson uh, just on the the challenges of the the autonomy there. Uh, an important thing I think it is to note is that the leaders in the eVTOL space they're all developing piloted aircraft, so they're. They're not going to be too different from the helicopters that fly today. Uh, there's going to be a pilot in there in charge, making decisions, talking to air traffic control. So they're, they won't have to, to grapple with the whole autonomy side of things. There are some companies that are trying to make autonomous flying cars or eVTOLs. Uh, Whisk, uh, which is now wholly owned by Boeing, is probably one of the most prominent companies in the West that's working on that. And, and they believe that they can come up with a self-flying air taxi. Uh, and that's going to be flying by the end of the decade. But there's, there's a lot of challenges on the autonomy side uh, in aviation as well. Yeah. Um Two now far less serious questions. Um, the, the 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 first one is so as, as you know, and, and thank you for reading a copy. I, I wrote a satirical novel about politics and flying cars. W based on everything you've done in this space, what advice do you have for me in terms of how I talk about this, how I pitch it? Like, what would you do if you were me and you had written this book? So I think your first of all, I think your book is super fun. I Thank really you. enjoyed it. I, I raced through it, <laughs> so, and not just because I'm I'm really interested in the subject. I think what you've done is you've created a really interesting thought experiment. So your book is very much focused on the the local yeah. politics side of things, yeah. which is going to be huge in the the vertiport side of the equation. Yeah. Um, but because the FAA doesn't play a prominent role in the book, you've almost created this thought experiment of like, you know, what would this industry look like if we did not have a strong federal regulator? Yeah. Um, and it would be a mess, right? Yeah, <laughs> so for, for I think, sure. I think you clearly showed that yeah. uh, if it's up to, you know, individual it, municipalities to decide whether these things are safe and should be allowed, it's going to be a, a total it's, mess. It's going to go badly. Yeah, yeah. You can't have a strong argument for the, the FAA and the role of a strong federal regulator uh totally different question like how how well does the faa perform that role so. yeah yeah I, th I think that's right it's so it, I, I when i was writing the book there were points where i'm like oh maybe i should make the faa character i'm like this is going to make it too complicated too confusing <laughs> less interesting um and I, and I do think sort of the you know being a veteran of the uber battles and the bird battles and everything else it's the municipal permitting fights will end up being kind of the most nasty local political you know because that's where stuff gets really personal right as opposed Absolutely, to the, the FAA yeah. is operating I guess pun intended at like at 50,000 feet and so like whether a vertiport port should go on one street instead of another like they, that's not their concern right but if you're like a city council member that that could be your whole next <laughs> that's election. all you care about yeah yeah <laughs> you, you could win or lose the next election on that so you, you can't take that kind of risk so, and and I will say you know I started out as a newspaper reporter so I covered a lot of those planning and zoning meetings. So I know exactly how they unfold. They are, <laughs> it's they brutal. Are brutal. Brutal is, is, the, is the only way to describe it. All right, last question, which is, so, so you are an expert, you know, in flying things, right? Whether you're writing about them or actually flying them yourself. Um, there's been a lot of talk lately about UFOs. What's your take on them? Okay, so I will say I am not a not a UFO expert at all, and I don't even follow the subject that closely. But I follow people who do follow the, the subject closely. And uh, I think that a lot of these incidents can be explained potentially uh, by uh, either sensor anomalies or you know, actual aircraft, whether ours or another country's uh, that, that 
you know, are out there doing their thing. Um, and so it's surprising to me that the, the conversation would, you know, shift immediately to aliens <laughs> when, when, when there are probably some other possible explanations for these phenomena that don't seem to be getting the airtime. So give me the more likely explanations. Ah, okay. Again, <laughs> saying that I'm, I'm not an expert, but, um, you know, sensor anomalies are, are not uncommon. And, uh, you know, certainly there's, uh, there's a lot of, uh, surveillance aircraft that we do and do not know about that uh, combination of uh, a surveillance aircraft uh, and or a a sensor anomaly could could lead to some uh, some results that that might otherwise seem inexplicable without alien technology. Cool. Um, Alon, how do people follow your work? Uh, so uh, I work for The Air Current, uh, theaircurrent.com. Um, I'm also on social media channels under my name, Alon Head, E-L-A-N-H-E-A-D. Great. All right. Thank you so much for joining us. This was a really fun interview. This was very fun. Thanks so much. 